Hello, and welcome to Laboratory Considerations from Q-Squared Solutions. I'm your host, Chris Connor. Q-Squared Solutions is a leading global clinical trial laboratory services organization providing comprehensive testing, project management, supply chain, biorepository, biospecimen, and consent tracking solutions. Leveraging our next-generation technologies, we deliver agile and precise services designed to meet the diverse needs of our clients. We provide scientific expertise and innovative solutions for ADMI, bioanalytical, genomics, vaccines, and central laboratory services, including flow cytometry, anatomic pathology, immunoassay, molecular, and companion diagnostics with meticulous regional and global clinical trial implementation support and high-quality data delivery. At Q-Squared Solutions, our work is rooted in research, grounded in collaboration, and guided by our passion to turn the hope of patients and caregivers around the world into the help they need. To learn more, visit q2labsolutions.com. That's Q, the number two, labsolutions.com. My guest today is Alex Watt. Alex is the global head for biotech, integrated laboratory solutions at Q Squared Solutions. Alex, welcome. Thank you, Chris. A pleasure to be here. This is the first of a three-part series on biotech, and the area we want to cover today are three things one should consider in preparation for biotech testing and or trials. And that is essentially our first question itself, and then we'll dig in a little deeper. But what are those three things that folks should be considering? Yeah, a great question to start us off, Chris. Thanks very much. There are three things that really come to the front of, of my mind. The first one is analytical testing requirements. So what services are required from the laboratories that are involved in the study to support the needs of the, the protocol? And whether that's safety testing, biomarker analysis, um, stuff that's more PK or PD related, or any kind of analytical services that are required to support the protocol design essentially. And understanding where will that testing be performed, which labs are going to be doing the analysis, and what are the requirements for those tests? What will the data that's going to be created from the test you be used for? Um, and where will that data go in terms of the flow of the data throughout the study? So understanding that kind of analytical landscape for the protocol is really key. Um, and what's going to happen with the results, because that defines the qualification requirements for the assays and the validation and certification levels for the labs that are involved in the research. I think the second thing, um, and it kind of flows naturally from the, the testing is the data. So data is also the key output from the work we do in the lab space. The results from the tests that we perform are, are end product essentially. So it's important to think about almost starting with the end in mind, right? What is the data going to be used for that's generated from the testing that we perform essentially within our laboratory network? So is that data just to be used for, um, you know, final data analysis and statistics, or is there requirements for interim reviews of that data for various purposes to look at efficacy of the drug, safety of the, um, the treatment involved in the study, and when will that data be required? So for example, if we have safety reviews that were required to be performed at the end of each kind of dose specific cohort in early phase studies, we need to think about which data is needed for that purpose and when's it going to be required. So the teams working on that project can reverse engineer the different steps in terms of sample 
collection, processing, and testing to make sure that the data could be in the right place at, at the right time. Another important consideration is, is that data going to be reported to clinical sites or not? If we're reporting data to sites, that means that there are some additional levels of both laboratory and test certification and qualification that we need to do to make sure that the assay is fit for purpose and can be used to either make decisions about treatment for subjects um, or to understand, you know, safety implications for certain um, drugs or conditions in terms of um, different indications that may be involved in the research. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you're collecting data for sort of a long run, but in some cases it sounds like data goes back um, because a physician would have an interest in their patient's interest of knowing what that data was at that point. Yeah, exactly, Chris. So there's really kind of two different ways in which data is used. So I guess the first one is, like I said earlier, an end product. So we provide a data package at the end of the trial. It's all the data, all the test results we performed, um, and that's then added to the rest of the clinical data for the study to create your kind of end biostats for the performance of the, the, the study and, and the drug in that trial. But also on an ongoing basis throughout the study, that lab data can be reviewed to look at patient safety, um, but also to look at inclusion of patients as well. So if we're doing testing at the start of a study to understand if subjects have a certain biomarker um, expression that's required for that treatment or for that study, then that's something that's required to be looked at on an ongoing basis. Um, and then, yeah, various different assays are going to have different usages. And it's important to understand, like I say, what the test is going to be used for in terms of that data throughout the study. So that can be planned for, and um, both in terms of the data availability, the testing schedule, and, and the format in which we share that data with our customers. Nice. All right. So that's two. Tell me about the third one. I think the third one is logistics and supply chain. And it's quite topical as we've just started to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, this is probably the area that's been the most disrupted for from a lab perspective in terms of clinical trials. And there's kind of two areas. So the first is about logistics and it's really around how does the biosample get from the patient and the site where it's collected to the, the lab that's going to be doing the analysis and then to its end, um, end destination as well. So if it's going to be a biobank or the customer's own storage facility that's going to store that exploratory sample for future research, we have to understand how that sample lifecycle looks and, and understand based on the sites that are involved in the study, where they're located, are there any risks linked to transportation based on the location of the sites? Um, some samples often have very short stability, um, and that means that we have to get from the point where they're collected to the lab where they're being analyzed in a very short space of time. So we have to assess, can that be done given the existing, you know, flight schedules and career services in localities that are involved in, in the research, um, and then make sure that planning in, involves any kind of risk mitigation around that. But also there are requirements around exportation of biosamples from many countries. Um, and it's important to understand what that means in terms of impact to timelines, but also preparation for the study as well to make sure that that's being planned for as part of the overall um, project initiation phase. I, I think yeah. the other element around the supply chain piece is really around availability of lab materials. So what we've seen uh, over the last couple of years is a massive consumption of lab materials um, for mass testing and vaccination programs. And that's meant that there's been certain materials that have been in short supply. Um, when you couple that with just general global pressure we see on supply chains around the world, 
um, there is a, a shortage of a number of different kinds of lab materials and consumables. And so making sure that at the start of your study, you understand what materials are required over the course of the study and where they're going to be needed um, and in what frequency is really important to plan for success in the study. Because if you run out of a certain material you need to collect a sample, that could delay your whole study. And it sounds simple, but we've seen that many times in the last couple of years. A lot to think about there for sure. What kinds of things sometimes get overlooked that would other things that would cause a delay in your testing? Yeah, another great question, Chris. And really, I think it's important to understand these factors because good planning here can really make sure that any potential risks and delays are, are mitigated. Um, and the things that come to mind for me based on my experience working with customers around starting up lab studies for a long period of time, um, the first one is regulatory requirements. So you don't often think about the regulatory requirements in the context of central labs because often the focus is on getting country level health authority and site level EC and IRB approvals. But for central labs, often there are special requirements that are around, as I mentioned earlier, import of um, lab materials into countries and export biosamples from those countries. And failure to plan for those appropriately can lead to delays um, getting those countries started up and getting sites in those countries activated. Um, and then also some kind of materials and lab um, samples require specific approvals from certain sites or countries to be able to transfer them outside of that locality. For example, tissue samples from certain countries and whole blood samples with genetic material from other countries need special approval. So all that needs to be understood and planned for and failure to do that can cause, like I say, quite significant delays because the timelines can be quite long for some of these country level approvals for certain biosample related activities. The other aspect there is around companion diagnostic studies. So if we're doing a companion diagnostic study in parallel with the clinical study, there are a whole raft of special considerations around that that we have to take um, consideration around and, and care of in order to qualify our labs as a companion diagnostic testing site um, and the personnel need to be qualified that's doing that analysis as well separately from what our standard kind of lab certification process is. So that's a whole different um, project that needs to be planned for essentially in the CDX space. I, I think other things that often cause delays, if not planned for properly around the tests required for the study, um, particularly when they're linked to patient inclusion. So if we're doing a test that's required to um, include or exclude patients or it's required at the start of a study to understand different kinds of treatment stratification, we have to know around that assay, um, is it a new assay, if it's a custom assay that needs to be validated or created from um, an existing assay that's being done at another laboratory, so it's transferred into our network or transferred from one lab to another, the timelines for that need to be understood and planned for. Um, as we see more and more like novel therapeutics and next generation products, there's much greater demand for these custom assays that we need to develop to understand more about specific biomarkers um, and these timelines to validate those assays can be quite lengthy, particularly when there's stuff like um, rare sample procurement we need to do to be able to start that, that assay development work. So those timelines are really important to understand and we need to know when is that assay going to be used and um, in which country uh, and, and the type of validation required as well, because that's going to depend on the approach we take, i.e. is it going to be exploratory testing only or is it going to be used for patient treatment um, or stratification decisions? 
I think linked to the, the ASI angle it, it is around if that ASI is going to be used as we were talking about for patient selection and inclusion, it's important to understand what cutoff is going to be used. So what is the, the clinical value that's going to be used to enroll subjects or exclude them? And how prevalent is that biomarker in the population that's going to be enrolled in, in the study? So if the assumptions aren't made appropriately there um, and you see a much higher or lower level of a certain value than you expected, that can lead to significant delays in, in getting subjects enrolled in the study um, because you just don't get the values that you're expecting per the protocol to be able to put them onto treatment. Um, and that's where it's important to have a partner that can access data that is able to look at historical levels of specific analytes to be able to inform some of that planning around protocol design and, and biomarkers. Another kind of common issue that we see is around sample quality. So if the sample is sent for testing centrally that's going to be used for biomarker analysis to include or exclude patients or to decide treatment initially, if that sample isn't of acceptable quality and we can't perform the test, that can cause quite a lot of, of impact to the sites and to patients because we have to go take in our sample to do retesting um, and also cause delays because we have to take time to, to do that whole process. So it's important to understand the quality of samples that are required um, and make sure that sites are trained on that before the study starts so we don't have to go back and um, do that once we're already in flight in terms of having subjects actively being enrolled into the study. We see that quite commonly with samples that are submitted for histology testing, essentially for um, different kinds of adhoc pathology tests. And um, if they have low, low tumor cell counts um, and we can't do the test, we have to go back and submit a request for a second specimen. And that can be quite lengthy on, on, on this um, enrollment time for the study and for that patient. Um, and a similar thing happens often when we're dealing with isolated what we call PBMC samples, so um, blood samples where we isolate lymphocytes. If the cell counts are really low, we can't perform the defined assays, we have to go back and get a new um, sample or we have to exclude that patient from the study. Um, so both can be quite impactful, as you can imagine. So it's really important to understand where there are specific requirements around the sample type, the sites are educated around that and that we get the samples that are of acceptable quality the first time. So we have to do this repeat. Um, testing and, and repeat collection of samples from patients. Then the, I think another thing that comes to my mind, again, I mentioned it earlier, data is really important and understanding the, the way that we're going to share data with the end users for the study. So understanding how that data needs to be packaged, what are the specifications for that data, where does it need to go, is it required, you know, on a set monthly cadence or is it required in more like real time and um, understanding all those requirements is really important and making sure that we work with our partners and our customers to establish that at the very start of the study is really key to having success and not having to run into delays around getting data available at the right time and in the right place then i think the last thing that comes to mind is if there are any specialty labs or um academic labs that need to have specific qualification and contracting. So again, depending on what they're doing for the study and um, what the intended use of the study uh, or the test, sorry, that lab is, the um, level of qualification and contracting may vary for those different facilities. And that can take some time if it's not already in place. So it's important to understand where 
labs are involved. And again, I'm kind of looking back to my original answer about the three three big things that are, need to be considered. But thinking of a deeper third party lab qualification is really important because if it's not done in a timely manner, um, then it can lead to delays. And if it's not done at all, it can lead to quality concerns around the data generated for the study. All right. So pretty comprehensive list. A lot of things can go wrong if you're not planning ahead, which uh, sort of leads to our next uh, question, which is when should a company initiate conversations to minimize all those risks of delay? What's the right time to come to somebody like Q Squared and say, hey, we're thinking about this? Yeah, I would say, Chris, but I think an ideal kind of timeline for this, that early engagement is about six months out from the study start and certainly no later than three months out from when the study starts. I think if you go past that, there's a real risk that we won't be able to get the study started in time and we won't be able to identify mitigation plans for any risks that we do discuss with our customers and partners at that early stage. So I think six months is a pretty good good guide, but earlier than that also works because some studies are, are very complex and if they have novel requirements for lab testing, like I said earlier, assay validation or um, lab qualification, then it, it may make sense to even engage before that six month time frame, more like a kind of nine to 12 months time frame. And um, we also could use that early engagement time to effectively partner with any kind of CROs that are involved from a clinical perspective on the study. So making sure that we're supporting them with things like um, site selection and identification. That logistics piece that I talked about earlier around ensuring that the countries involved are going to have the right transit corridors and we have the right import and export documentation and licenses in place to support those countries is really important. Um, and just making sure that we can also engage with the customers and any CROs on the, the study design. So if we can support the protocol design in terms of the lab testing element of that, we're happy to do that. Um, we can discuss things like biomarker selection and prevalence like we were talking about and um, the right assays that can be used to support the study based on what we can support within our network or where we can advise other labs that can support certain kinds of tests. Um, they're the kind of things that we would like to discuss early with our customers. And really that makes, I think, the most effective platform for success of the, the study, if we can do that in an early stage. I'm thinking about the third-party lab qualifications, which might seem like something that I don't know if um, a biotech company coming to you would know that that was going to be required. So it sounds like it could be worth a phone call at least at 12 months out to say, we're thinking about this. Does that look like we're going to involve a third-party lab? Because if they show up at six months and that qualification hasn't been done, right? Yeah, I think that's a really great idea. We're happy to consult with customers around that and, and provide some guidance on what they, they should and shouldn't be doing around that. And it, yeah, it, it's often, I think, like I said earlier, overlooked and not that well understood. So it's important to be able to plan for that. I think it comes back to probably the very first point that I said at the start of this discussion, which is around understanding which testing is going to be done where, what's that going to be used for, because then we can say, okay, that is going to need to, you know, be considered as research use only, or it needs to be considered as a cat clear validated assay and then we can advise on what that means in real terms and operational terms for that study and, and for planning purposes. So the earlier we can discuss that with customers, the better. As I look ahead in our outline for our next two episodes, we're going to cover that third-party lab piece in the third episode. But if, 
if we don't, we should definitely do another episode because that sounds like an important thing to help people understand what types of things are going to require a third-party lab and what does that entail. Yeah, absolutely. Look forward to that discussion in some more depth, Chris. All right. So uh, last question for today is if a companion diagnostic is part of the plan, how does that change the whole picture? Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, it's an important thing to consider if there's a companion diagnostic assay involved in, in the study and running in parallel with the clinical study. And for us, it's really viewed as a separate project or a project within a project. It needs to be managed in a kind of specialized way as there are some really specific requirements around um, diagnostic projects that are quite unique in terms of how they need to be set up and, and managed. It's also in nearly all cases on the critical path to the clinical study start because the, that diagnostic assay is required for inclusion of patients by its very nature in, in the majority of cases. So it's really important to understand the timelines as they relate to the diagnostic project and then to kind of layer them on top of the clinical timelines to make sure that they correlate well because a delay in one can lead to a delay in the other for sure. I think the key things to consider, there's probably three factors that I would say are, are the most important when you're thinking about planning for CDX studies. The first one is how we're going to qualify the performing laboratories. So companion diagnostic studies require um, both a laboratory qualification by the diagnostic manufacturer of that test, but they also need to qualify anyone that's doing any kind of interpretation around that assay. So. For example, if it's a pathology assay, you know, an IHC assay from tissue, for example, they have to make sure that they've trained and certified our pathologists are doing the scoring and the reading of those um, samples before they report them out to the sites and before we can go live with that study. So timelines and the schedule for the diagnostic partners to train the portfolio labs is really important. Um, and that can take some time based on availability of the diagnostic partners, training specialists to be able to get that fitted in. And also, if it's a large study running in different labs globally, each lab has to be trained individually. So it, that for sure needs to be planned as soon as possible. There's some special uh, regulatory approvals that are required for the CDX studies as well. So for example, our central lab sites need to be certified as um, centers to perform the diagnostic study, and they have to get IRB approval to do that. Um, so we need to make sure that we're aligned with the diagnostic partner on who's going to be doing the submissions so the IRB How's that going to be managed? And we also need to make sure that our um, lab directors are certified as a PIs for that device study. So there's a number of things we have to work on there with a the diagnostic partner to make sure that we um, have all the different regulatory requirements in place um, and squared away before we can start the diagnostic or indeed the clinical study. And then I think that the last thing is really around how we collaborate and communicate with our, our customer sponsors and their diagnostic partners that are leading the device study, because it sounds simple, but that three-way engagement and communication is really key to success in a diagnostic study. So we have to make sure from a very early stage of um, planning that we've got the appropriate kind of contracts in place that allow us to discuss things in a three-way manner between all three parties at the same time. Um, and we have to make sure that we've got open discussion and planning um, around trial specifics that allow us to effectively plan for the device and the clinical study in, in parallel, if that makes sense. So I think that's really, really key. And from past experience and learning we've had, that's one of the first things that we want to get in place because from there, you know, that open 
channels of communication between all three parties involved really makes it um, a more effective and more efficient process in terms of how we can run that diagnostic study for our, our customers and partners. Well, Alex Watt, this has been very informative. I want to say on that last section around companion diagnostics, uh, we previously have done a podcast specifically around companion diagnostics for immuno-oncology. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well as, I don't know if it was a webinar or a video of a presentation that happened at a meeting last year where uh, the whole topic was around this three-party interaction and, and working together on a project for a companion diagnostic. So I'll link that as well. And again, Alex Watt, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Chris. Great to speak to you. To learn more, visit q2labsolutions.com slash biotech. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. The next episode in this series will cover risk management and scientific expertise. You can find laboratory considerations wherever you get your podcasts.